Well, good morning, Hickory Bible Church. It is good to be with you all today, enjoying some nice, sweet southern hospitality here in Hickory, North Carolina. Um, My wife and I and our two little girls had the privilege of being here last year for Camp Abide, and it was a joy to be with a lot of the youth from your church here, and we got to tour the church building and eat a hatch sandwich in the kitchen, Uh, but to actually be here with you on a Sunday morning is a joy, and looking forward to meeting more of you. My wife Ginger and I have been staying uh, with the Reese's this weekend, which it's a lovely experience. It's also a dangerous experience when you have a three and a half and a one and a half year old, because if you don't know, Mandy Reese's nickname is Candy Mandy. (laughs) It's rubbed off on Steve, her husband, because this morning at 8.15, My daughter wakes up, runs into the kitchen, and um, wants breakfast, and Steve goes, would you like some candy? (laughs) If you're you're a parent of a child that age, you know how dangerous that is. Um, But it's a a real delight to be here, and very much looking forward to Camp Abide for the rest of this week. Um, Pray for us that we get through it, and that souls would be saved, and that Christ would be glorified uh, through that. Well, I want to turn your attention this morning to Psalm 32. You can turn your Bibles to Psalm 32. And we'll, we'll read the entirety of the psalm. It's just 11 verses um, before we get into the text. Psalm 32, it's a, a maskil of David. And we're not exactly sure what maskil means, although... Uh, many scholars think it's, it's a contemplative poem. It's a, a, a poem or a song of reflection. And so David is sitting back and reflecting on his life and the reality of repentance and forgiveness. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the very word of the living God. When I was in high school, there was 
a band that I became obsessed with. And I listened to all of their CDs, every song, memorizing all of the words. And I think there's some that still are in my mind. I could pull out if I were to hear certain chords being strummed on a guitar. But there was one song and one lyric in specific that when I heard it, it immediately stuck with me because it resonated with me. And the words that were being sung in that song were these. And the young, they can lose hope because they can't see beyond today. Oh, the wisdom which the old can't give away. Powerful thought, isn't it, about young people losing hope because they, they can't look beyond their present circumstances. And those who've walked longer through life can look at the young and, and it's almost this feeling of helplessness. Oh, I wish I could just tell them there's more than Friday night. There's more than just this, this high school broken heart. You've got decades to live, my son. And yet there's this inability almost to communicate that wisdom. Oh, the wisdom which the old can't give away. That resonated because it can be hard for young people to look past their present despair. That failed task, that lost opportunity, that heartbreak. I had a, a classmate senior year of college, I'll never forget, who hung himself outside his girlfriend's window because she had become his ex-girlfriend. Hopeless. No place to go, no future to see, lost in despair. Now, whether we're young or old, the reality is that our sin can make all of us feel hopeless, especially when it has a grip on your soul and takes you further than you imagined it would take you, quicker than you imagined it would. It can be hard to look beyond it, our own failure, our own sin. John Piper said a number of years ago about this reality of, of sin causing people to lose hope. He, he said these words, there is a tragic number of young people who at one point in their lives dreamed of radical obedience to Jesus and were joyfully willing to lay down their lives and sacrifice anything to make Jesus known among the nations, but then faded away into useless American prosperity because of a gnawing sense of unworthiness and guilt over failure that gradually gave way to spiritual powerlessness and the dead-end dream of the middle-class security and comfort. So many young people are being lost in the cause of Christ's mission because they are not taught how to deal with the guilt of their sin. It's the guilt of sins committed that leaves us hopeless. Um, I'm sure you've experienced it, that, that sense of, Spiritual vitality and life being drained from you. This morning, I want us to learn how to deal with the guilt of sin. And I want us to do it from the life of a very famous and heinous sinner, King David. Who, in the face of his grievous sin and rebellion against God, experienced the joy and the hope 
that comes with repentance and forgiveness. I'm calling this sermon a song for sinners. Um, because I think it's a song that everyone here can relate to. Because every single one of us in this room has a relationship with sin. You have a relationship with sin. And each one of us in this room is at a different place in that relationship with sin. Some of you are flirting with sin right now and even thinking, do I let go or do I hold on? Some of you maybe have come out of a season where you felt defeated. Perhaps you've, you've, you're in a season of, of victory and, and you're, you're rejoicing at God's grace of victory in your life. Some of you undoubtedly in this room have yet to come to any victory over sin at all because you still love your sin. Maybe you're just starting out in life and you're wondering, maybe sin is going to satisfy. Or maybe you're towards the end of life and you've realized, why do I keep thinking it will? It hasn't so far. But we all have a relationship with sin. And this psalm shows us the path to happiness in life and joy and satisfaction is through repentance from sin. In this psalm, you can break it up quite easily. Um, David sort of plays two roles in this psalm. He, he begins as a, a historian of sorts, um, walking us back through two seasons in his life. And, and then he steps out of maybe the, the classroom of history and into a stage or behind a pulpit like this and, and acts as a sage teaching us about the path to happiness. And so uh, he's going to, to walk us through an experience of his life to show us that sin will never satisfy us and we can only find satisfaction in the forgiveness that God offers. But, but before we begin with this little history lesson, I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 and just notice, uh, David gives away his main point right away. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That, that word, blessed, um, my wife and I were talking the other day and saying, why do we sing blessed and then say blessed, or we say blessed and then we read blessed? Um, I was reading a text to preach um, some months ago, and it had blessed several times, and I think for half of them I said blessed, the other half I said blessed, and I couldn't figure out what I'm supposed to say, but regardless how you pronounce this word, blessed or blessed, it simply means happiness or happy. Happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And if we were to just zoom out for a moment, looking at the book of Psalms itself, this entire book of 150 songs collected is a book teaching us how to have the happy life. Remember Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. If you look at verse 9 of Psalm 2, blessed is the man who finds refuge in the Son. Happy are you if you find refuge in the Son of God. This book is about you and I finding happiness and blessing. And so Psalm 32 is simply another stop on the tour towards happiness. 
The psalmist is, is showing us this is how your life can be blessed. And, and in Psalm 32, we have a stop on the tour showing us how we can be happy in light of sin. Notice the words that David uses for sin in these two verses, transgression, sin, iniquity. It's as if he is gathering every word he can possibly find to describe his rebellion. Transgression. It's a military term that has the idea of planning a military assault. Planning a military invasion. There's an intentionality to it. And and by communicating through transgression, David is showing us a certain piece of sin's pie of, of this is an intentional assault upon God. I was like a general assaulting the army of the Lord. The word sin simply means missing the mark. And it shows David's sin in relation to the law of God. The law of God requires one thing, and David's missed it entirely. And this word iniquity is an interesting word, one we can relate to especially. It has the connotation of something twisted and perverse in your own soul. And so David is is gathering every word he can imagine for his behavior and saying, the Lord has forgiven my transgression. My sin is covered and he does not count my iniquity. Now, with those descriptions of his action, can you think of a time or an incident in David's life that he might be speaking about? Some of you may be familiar with David's sin with Bathsheba. There is a famous incident in this great king's life that we read about in 2 Samuel 11. It begins with David, at a time when kings go to war, David stayed home. And he's walking along his roof, looking out over his kingdom at dusk, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. David and Bathsheba. David subsequently calls to her to be brought to him. An affair, soon followed by the announcement of a pregnancy. David finds himself in a difficult situation because he, the king of Israel, has taken another man's wife illegitimately who is now pregnant. And it just so happens that that man, Bathsheba's Husband Uriah was fighting in battle for the safety and protection of Israel. He was away at war while David stayed home and stole his wife. And so David, caught in his sin, has to quickly think, how can I get out of this? And so he calls Uriah home from the battlefield, treats him to a sumptuous feast in the king's palace, and intentionally gets him drunk with wine to send him home to be with his wife. You think about the deviance of that when David uses that word iniquity, recognizing the twisting of his own nature, the reality that he schemed to allow this man to be with his wife to think that that child was Uriah's and to raise David's child as if it was his own. David's deception. It ended up not working. 
Uriah was too righteous a man and said, how can I be with my wife in my home while my fellow soldiers are fighting on the battlefield? I refuse. And so foiled by his by, by, by Uriah, David's plan takes another twisted turn, and he actually arranges for Uriah to be abandoned on the battlefield and killed. And then he takes Bathsheba as his own. It's a heinous blight in David's life, and one that's been recorded for us on the pages of Scripture for millions of people to read for thousands of years. And in response, we got two songs, or two psalms written by David, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And David, writing this psalm, probably sometime after that whole ordeal was done, because it's a a psalm of reflection, he starts by, by saying he's happy, he's blessed. Three words he uses for forgiveness, forgiven, covered, and not counted. This idea of his sin was lifted off and covered. It was put out of sight and it was not counted against him. And an accounting term, a bookkeeping term. The ledger recording David's sins against Bathsheba and against Uriah and against Israel were no longer counted. The ledger was thrown away. And David begins this psalm by saying, happy is the one and he's the one. Blessed is the man. What a happy place to be. Totally forgiven. But it wasn't always that way. In steps David as the historian to walk us through the journey, to take us to the place where ultimately he would be blessed, but it didn't begin there. In verses 3 and 4, we have David the historian. And look at what he says. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. David begins recounting this season of rebellion in his life when when he had chosen to cover his sin and to keep silent. That's the point of his rebellion. For when I kept silent... His rebellion was was shown in him covering his sin. And that note of covering is an important one through the psalm because this psalm begins with David covering his sin and it ends with God covering his sin. But David was willing to say nothing, to commit these heinous acts and act as if they had never happened, to tell no one. But look at God's response in verse 4. It's a loving response. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David uh, describes God's discipline of him as a hand pressing down upon him. And it really is a picture of misery. Look at what he says. My bones wasted away, groaning. My strength was dried up. My wife uh, loves the Weather Channel, always has. Uh, I don't really share that love for her, uh, for her, with her. I love her more than anything, Um, enough to watch the Weather Channel with her. Um, We were watching a show the other day, it was called SOS, um, 
something. And it was basically a show about teaching you if you were ever trapped in the wilderness or desert, how to survive. There was a guy who went out hiking in, around Austin, Texas and lost his way. And he was recounting just after several days in the desert how so dehydrated his body had become so weak that even trying to cut a cactus open to get a little bit of water, he, he, he was out of breath and hardly had the strength to, to cut a cactus. Strong, grown man. That's what David was feeling. It's, it's metaphor, of course. It's poetic, but, but he's describing something about his experience. He, he's drained. He's, he's got no energy, no vitality, and he feels as if the divine hand of God has been pressing down upon him, and it's, it's pressing harder and firmer by the minute. But that's actually a demonstration of God's grace because God doesn't simply destroy him. If we take David's metaphor of the hand, here's David the rebel who has committed adultery and murder and great deception and he's held in God's hand and instead of just crushing little David, God simply chooses to slowly press to allow David to feel his weakness and his frailty and humanity. It's a display of God's mercy and kindness. And that's because this is how God responds to the sins of his people. He doesn't let his children get away with their sin. And yet, at the same time, he doesn't fly off the handle in rage and destroy you. He presses you. There's two texts I, I just want to put in your minds regarding that. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in him who he delights. Commenting on that, Hebrews 12 verses 7 to 11 show us that God disciplines all those who are his children. And the author to the Hebrews says, if you're left without discipline, if you can enjoy your sin and never feel the divine hand pressing you, then you're an illegitimate son. In other words, you're not his. It's a display of his fatherly affection to press you. Have you felt that pressing? the unease of conscience, the loss of joy, the inability to function, the, the spiritual vitality being drained, the, the, the reality that God won't let you enjoy your sin. That even though you go, you know what, I'm going to get away with this one. I'm going to have some fun for just a little time and then I'm coming back. And, and, and you go and you begin to taste and it's, it doesn't even taste what you thought it would taste like can't even enjoy it because your, your conscience is so ravaged. The pressing of a loving father. He won't let you go in your sin. There's a, a movie that just came out um, from India. It's called R, R, and R. And there's, um, it, it's essentially about British colonialists invading India and, and attacking tribes and, and using them for their own gain. And, and there's one tribe, the, the Ganda tribe, that the colonialists attack, and, and they, they steal a beautiful young girl who's got this majestic singing voice. They kidnap her to take her to the leaders 
mansion where she just sings for his party. And the whole movie is about this revolutionary uh, pursuing the colonialist to, to retrieve the girl. It's a hero tale. And at one point, the colonialists are warned about this tribe. Basically, you've messed with the wrong tribe, and here's why. This is what they're told about the Gonda tribe. Even if you oppress them, they won't raise their voice, but they have a trait. They like staying in herds like sheep. Even if one lamb goes missing, it causes them great distress. This is why the herd has a shepherd, and he protects the herd with his life. The shepherd will travel however far to retrieve the missing lamb, be it morning or night, sun or rain, rocks, mountains, valleys, peaks. He will search every nook and corner, and if he happens to find the little lamb in the tiger's mouth, he will break its teeth, pry its jaws open, and take the lamb back to its herd. God is the shepherd. He's a protector of his children. Even when his children are running from the herd into the lion's mouth, into the tiger's jaws, running after their sin, the Lord will not allow his children to go in their sin. He will pursue them. Even if he has to pry the tiger's mouth open and take the little lamb back. The Lord reproves him whom he loves. And so David, who was running for his sin, was experiencing the loving press of his father, pressing down on his soul. And then he says that word, selah. It's another word you'll see in the Psalms. Again, we don't know exactly what it means. However, most believe it means pause. It's a musical term, pause. And so David, reflecting on that season of rebellion, pauses. I think it's good for us sometimes to pause and think about where we've been, even our own foolishness. You think often of your sinfulness and pause. But then the historian introduces a second season of life, and it's repentance. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. David's repentance He uncovers his sin. He began by covering it. Now he's uncovering it. And it it looks like acknowledging, I made known my sin to you. God God already knew it. but, But this is letting us know that David was now finally agreeing with God about it. He doesn't cover it. No more excuses. And he confesses it. He speaks it openly to the Lord. And notice David uses the same three words for sin that he used in verse 1. Sin, iniquity, transgression. Notice what words he's not using. Misstep. Error. Mistake. There's no excuses. He says, the one in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he says, happy is the one in whom there's no deceit. Friends, do you use deceit in your repentance? Well, Lord, it was just a very difficult week, and Lord, if the woman who you gave me, Lord, if I hadn't been, well, God, if you would just provide, I wouldn't need to. No, 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 no deceit, no excuses, no reputation damage control. How can I fix this to keep my image? 
No, David cares nothing for that. He is confessing it openly, acknowledging it openly. Lord, this is my sin. It's murder and adultery, and I did it, Lord. Full exposure, agreement with God. It was genuine repentance. Uh, there's, uh, you, some of you may remember some years ago, there was a, a, a case very public in the news with uh, Larry Nasser, the, the U.S. gymnast uh, physio who had abused many young women. And uh, Rachel Den Hollander uh, was the first woman to come forward and to expose uh, Nasser in his um, abuse. And at the sentencing of this man, there was the opportunity um, for the victims to speak. And Rachel uh, went first and gave a victim statement to the court, but also addressed Nasser and, and listened to what she said. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things. As if good deeds can erase what you have done, it comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done and all of its depravity and horror, without excuse, acting, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. She's told him that the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and thrown into a lake than for you even to hurt one child. The Bible you speak or you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And what David was experiencing here was the soul-crushing weight of guilt. But here's what I want us to see. Look at the end of verse 5. And in this short little phrase, we see the response of God to David's confession, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. We do need to pause there. How is this, how is this possible? How can David say that? You forgave the iniquity of my sin. God is a God of justice. He says in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. But, but here he does. David was guilty. And the Lord forgave. And I think our response probably initially is, well, that's good news. That's great news. The Lord, the Lord forgives. Great. Not if you're Bathsheba's mom. Not if you're Uriah's father. You mean David just gets away with it? Friends, have you, have you wrestled with this reality of forgiveness? How can God be just and not send David to hell? How can God be just and not send me to hell? 
Forget David. I'm David. I've sinned thousands of times. And the Lord forgave my sin. You know, I think most people actually wrestle with the opposite question here. How could God be just and send me to hell? How could God be just and not bring me to heaven? Of course he'll forgive. Of course he'll justify me. God owes me, after all. He owes me health. He owes me financial security and beautiful, healthy children and a nice car and a good job. And if God dare take any one of those things away, my response is, how dare you? You owe me this, God. But my friends, God is a God of justice, which means that every sin you and I commit deserves to be punished. And we look at this where it says God forgave the iniquity of my sin, and we say, how is this possible that God would forgive. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 3 just for a moment. If, if David's sin was sinful, the <laughs> Paul in Romans 1, 2, and 3 shows us that every single person, every single person has come under the wrath of God for their sin. There's none who can point to another and say, you're a greater sinner than me, because look at what he says in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, all have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Through verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, Paul is is presenting the, the whole world as sinners, the whole world as David. And he says in verse 19 that every single person will be held accountable to God. And in verse 20, you can't work your way out of this accountability. No amount of good works will get you off the hook. And so what hope is there for the sinner? Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I want to talk to you about that word propitiation for a second. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. And it's irreplaceable in the English language because there's really no other word that communicates this concept, propitiation. It's the reality that that Jesus Christ absorbed the full weight of God's wrath, not some some senseless, emotionless uh, uh, reaction or energy of wrath. No, 
Jesus Christ absorbed the full weight of God's personal vengeance against the sinner. God is invested in the sin because all sin is committed. It's a direct offense to the person of God. It's as if you are a guilty criminal and when you get to the courtroom, you look and on the bench is the man against whom you've sinned, against whom all your crimes have been committed. And there is wrath coming for the sinner and in propitiation, Jesus Christ absorbs every single drop. You can think about propitiation like a sponge. You know, sponges, and there's a bucket. You're the bucket, and Jesus is the sponge. And the water coming out of the pail is the wrath of God. And it's a big pail full of a lot of water. What happens in propitiation is that this water, as it's coming down to be poured out upon you, the wrath of God upon you, the sinner, Jesus Christ steps in as the sponge that absorbs every drop of wrath, and not a single drop falls through to you, the sinner. What Jesus Christ did on the cross was imputed himself. He he substituted himself. He stepped into your place in between you and God, and absorbed God's justice on your behalf. There's, there's a, a sentence in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, Paul says, he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of Christ the Son, who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize, friends, what happened on the cross of Christ? Jesus Christ stepped into the place of sinners, and God the Father looked upon him as if he had committed every act that David committed, as if he was the one, as if Jesus Christ was the one walking on the rooftop, as if Jesus Christ was the one scheming how I could kill Uriah. And on the cross, Jesus Christ stood in David's place and bore the full weight of God's wrath and justice against King David and against all who put their faith in him. Look Look at the second part of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You look at King David and say, how can God forgive a man like that? Because God was being patient, knowing that he would pour out the wrath upon his son. He would bear the full weight of that sin. God's justice finds resolution at the cross where Jesus Christ took the place of sinners bearing the penalty for their sin and giving them his righteousness. Which means that the vilest sinner, you and me, can be counted righteous because Jesus paid the penalty. It's interesting, um, you, you sit here at the end of Romans 3 and say, well, Paul, maybe give us an illustration of this. L- look at chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And what's the next line? Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes 
Psalm 32, blessed, happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. My friends, how could God look at David and say, your sins are forgiven? It's because when he looked at Jesus on the cross, he did not say, your sins are forgiven, but he said, every sin is counted to you, and he punished him for it. There is no injustice with God. Every sin will be punished either by the sinner in hell or by Christ on the cross. I told you a minute ago about Rachel Den Hollander speaking to her abuser in court. She, she didn't end with the soul-crushing weight of guilt. This is how she ended. Larry, this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Back to Psalm 32, 5. David says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David, the historian, now maybe steps out of the history classroom and behind the pulpit and acts as a sage. And for the remainder of the psalm, he has two points of wisdom, two little pearls to give us. One is hurry up, which I will take a cue from for this sermon. And B, uh, second, is humble yourself. Notice Psalm 32, 6, therefore let everyone who is godly, by the way, that's just a little reminder that he's not speaking to some heinous sinner here, some special kind of sinner. Oh, this, oh, I know who this psalm is for. Oh boy, I know who I'm going to give this psalm to. This is a good preach, preacher. Nancy needs to hear this. No, no, no. Therefore let every one of you who is godly, he's speaking to the Christian which tells me something that, that sin, transgression, iniquity is not a far step away from any one of us. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. For surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. David here is giving us a pearl of advice, namely, hurry up. David endured the agonizing pain of God's pressing hand of discipline. So why should you listen to the sage? I've been there. Don't go there. Outside of Israel, in the Qumran, there are what's called wadis. And wadis are very dry points in the desert, but they're mountainous sort of ravines and Repellers and climbers love to challenge themselves climbing the wadis. But there are select seasons during the year, during rainy season, when flash floods hit the wadis. And it's infrequent, doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, the waters become violent. In 2007, on a particular weekend, meteorologists had forecasted rain in the area. 
and there was a group of repellers who'd entered the wadi to repel them. There was a man named Ofer, who was a photographer. He showed up to take pictures of the water pouring through the ravines, and he saw the repellers climbing. He warned them that the flood was coming. They shouted back at him, what are you doing? We're repelling instructors. We know what we're doing. This is what Ofer said. When a flash flood hits, it's like a bus hitting you at 100 miles an hour. It's like millions of buses worth of water coming down all at once. We told them they were going to die, but they didn't listen. I saw these people and knew that they were going to die, and they didn't listen to me. I felt so helpless. And four repellers that day lost their lives. Psalm 95 tells us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And David is telling you and me the same. Repent, hurry up and repent, because look at the blessing that comes in verse 7. You, O God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I think one of the reasons perhaps we, we are so often slow to repent of our sins, slow to acknowledge it, is because we think God is like us. That the moment I open up and I tell you what I've really done, you judge me and you condemn me. And we fear that, that I, can't, I can't be open, I can't be honest. Because I fear the consequence. But look at this God. Look at your God, Christian. The one who repents, who opens, finds a hiding place. It's like this hand that's been pressing you now holds you and cups you. And though the, the storm may be raging around you, he hides you and he protects you. He preserves from trouble and delivers you with shouts of deliverance, what you have to receive from the Lord in repentance is deliverance and joy. So hurry up and repent. And the second piece of wisdom is humble yourself. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you, this is verse 8, with my eye upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. You must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. The Lord wants you near him. Isn't that a remarkable thought? He wants you near him, and he's going to bring you near him, even if he has to put a bit and a bridle in your mouth. And you look at the end of the psalm, and you see the, re the, the result of being near God. Um, look at verse 10. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 11. Gladness and rejoicing and shouting for joy. It is sweet to be near the Lord. To be in his presence, enjoying fellowship with him. And he'll make sure that you are near him, Christian. So David's little pearl of wisdom is humble yourself before he has to humble you. Don't be a donkey. Some of you got King James in here. You say, how do, you, how, how, do I, so how do I do that? How do I humble myself? Verse 5, repent. Acknowledge your sin. Uncover it. Confess it. 
Those who don't, verse 10, are surrounded by sorrow. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You know, David acted wickedly. He experienced sorrow, but he repented. And his misery turned to joy. There is so much freedom in repentance. Clean conscience, a forgiven heart. My friend, that's the difference between the wicked and the righteous. Everyone sins. Everyone sins. But how do you respond to that sin? Are you covering it? Hiding it? Protecting it? Or like David, are you acknowledging? Are you uncovering? And what you find when you uncover the sin, the Lord immediately covers it in the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, as Christians, we call ourselves believers. Oh, are you a believer? I wish we'd also call ourselves repenters. Because happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The road to happiness goes through repentance, my friends. May we be known as repenters. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we hear this message from David. Lord, all of us in this room, Lord, we, we confess our sin to you and we do not cover our iniquity and we acknowledge our transgression. Hear us, O Lord, and forgive us and restore us. And may we find ourselves rejoicing in the blood of Christ and the joy that comes from knowing him and having a clean conscience and a forgiven soul. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.